Hi, it's Alex here. I'm convinced that there are now incredible opportunities for producers looking to bring stories to screen. There are now more formats, platforms, distribution, and financing strategies than ever before. That's why I am launching the Future of Film Entrepreneurial Storyteller Program. It's a 12-month virtual program designed for producers looking to build future-proofed businesses and careers. Discover how the Future of Film Entrepreneurial Storyteller Program can take your projects and career to the next level and register your interest today at futureoffilm.live slash ESP. That's futureoffilm.live slash ESP. Coming up in today's film disruptors. <laughs> it's like learning from manufacturing. It's like rapid prototyping. Yeah. How do you get to a minimum viable product in the quickest amount of time? And it's horrible to try and reduce something that's so inherently creative to these quite mechanical ideas. But I think it's really useful to look at our industry. Sometimes take a step back and go, we're manufacturing. That's what we're doing. We're creating a product as much as it is this labor of love. And it has to be because it's a bloody hard industry to work in. All of them, all the creative industries are. But what we're doing is creating minimum viable products mm -hmm. through a prototyping process that we need to take to market and sell. Like that is what we're doing. Yeah. Hello everyone and welcome to season three of Film Disruptors. My name is Alex Stoltz and as regular listeners will know, this is a show where I share insights and strategies from the trailblazers who are shaping the future of film. Today is a very special episode because it was recently recorded live at the 2020 Glasgow Film Festival, where I was lucky enough to sit down and have a conversation with Nason Alai Karu. Nason is the managing director of Blazing Griffin, the Glasgow-based digital entertainment company which specializes in telling stories across film, games, and TV. Nason oversees business development, operations and strategy, as well as heading up the company's film and TV division. And in 2017, he produced the zombie musical comedy, of course, Anna and the Apocalypse. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Nathan. In it, we discussed the intersection of film and games and how Blazing Griffin straddle both of these using, the using their format agnostic storytelling approach. Nathan also shares his powerful story behind the making of Anna and the Apocalypse and provides some amazing insight into building a career and a success, successful entertainment company geared for today's digital age. Thank you again to the wonderful Glasgow Film Festival for having me back. And it's always a pleasure to visit Glasgow and the festival, which has a great energy about it. And I, as before, highly recommend it if you ever get a chance to go. If you are enjoying the show, just want to find out more, there are a few ways to stay up to date. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify or any of the major podcast platforms. You can also sign up for updates at the new home of Film Disruptors, which is futureoffilm.live. Just enter your email to receive all the latest news and episodes straight to your inbox. 
And this is where you can also access all three seasons of the show and discover all of the other Future of Film activities and resources available. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening and now please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Nathan Alai Karu. And I started the show by asking Nathan about where the name Blazing Griffin came from. That's fair. Um, that's actually uh, one of my uh, co-founders, Peter Vanderwatt. Um, he came up with the name a long time ago, prior to this version of um, Blazing Griffin, and uh, it's related to kind of his history and has a long, not massively interesting story <laughs> behind it. Oh, yeah. But we actually went through a whole process where we um, we wanted to rebrand the company, and we got uh, we were like. We're a new thing. We're not just video games. We're doing all of these things, and we're really a new entity. Let's call ourselves something new. And uh, we tried for about six months to come up with something better, and we just didn't. So we went, yeah, Fine. screw it. Yeah, that's good. Blazing Griffin, strong name. Uh, and what was the when you started out? Were you was was it starting out as like this vision of a hybrid company, film and games, and post? I know you do as well. So. Yeah. So. It actually started out with um, three visions, I guess, because we were three companies. We were a video games company, mm-hmm. a film and TV production company, and a post-production company, right. all at very early stages, all with just a handful of people in each company. And um, the three of us who were in those companies at the time, we kind of looked at each other and we went, we all want to be working in the different industries and we can see the how the... Um, uh, the total is greater than the sum of the parts or whichever way around that is. Mm. But basically that there is an additive effect that, mm. um, by bringing us all together. Uh, and we thought that we could create a sustainable business. And that was really what we were looking for at the time. Um, we were like, how do you create a business which can show value, that can attract investment, that you can use to build something um, bigger from? And what excited us creatively is that we all grew up playing within story worlds, not just watching a DVD or going to the cinema or playing a game, but we we enjoyed the stuff that really impacted us creatively as kids was things where you immerse yourself in a universe and you could go off and you could read a comic book or you could play a video game or you could read or watch a film in that same universe. And we were like, why can't we do that? And it seems like that should be easy. It's not easy. <laughs> uh, like as we've there. learned, <laughs> it's really not easy. Um, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. And so, uh, yeah, we thought we, could, thought we could do something together and kind of joined forces. Yeah. That's uh, that idea of a sustainable production business is, is <laughs> but, well, not, not meant to be funny. I mean, that's, you know, obviously there are some, but I mean, it's, 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 a, it's often a, you know, producers are often working from one project to the next. There's no, there's a, you, you lease out your IP for a number of years to, 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 to distributors or sales agents, and then you're back again. So tell me about this idea of a, what, does that, what does that look like, being a sustainable business is that is that where the post comes in partly it's an aspect of it i mean being frank we're still growing we're still figuring all of this out so this is a journey that we're on um we post-production certainly is an element of it we're pretty um we kind of had chinese walls between our divisions as much as we work together um so each division does have to stand on its own two feet and has to justify its self in terms of its business and and creatively so it's not that one should be subsidized by the other but that doesn't mean that there aren't um 
there's real value with vertical integration and when it comes to film and, and post-production, but there's also huge value when it comes to horizontal integration between, between video games and film. Mm -hmm. And so the, the idea of building value, <clears throat> in my head, as an economic student, it always comes down to property. You own an asset. Mm -hmm. And in our case, it's an intellectual property. Mm -hmm. So the more that you can own and the more that you can build the value of that by having multiple products or multiple expressions of that right. intellectual property, um, the more value you're building inside your company. Now, at the stage that we're at, and also just the way the world is now, you have to be fleet-footed and you have to be nimble and there can't be one size fits all. You're just holding on to your idea for dear life and not wanting to share that and not wanting to divvy that up to distributors and sales agents and all of that mm. is not really practical and mm. it, everyone who works in the media industry knows it takes a team and not just a team inside your company but a team of companies to make something come to fruition mm. so we work with great partners who share that vision and we're working with more partners who share that as well um, but the core of it is still that we can build something creatively excellent that we can then start to just have fun within that world and mm. in lots of interesting ways in the stuff mm. that we build and get excited about um, whilst working with lots of people because we need to. Uh, so, so when you're when you're looking at your, your, you, you describe yourself as storytellers rather than filmmakers or yeah. game makers. So, you, so when you're looking for your stories, are you are you looking for um, uh, something which which can travel across different platforms is, is that like a key criteria when you're sort of thinking about what projects to commit to and yeah we have a few key criteria so one we are what we call platform agnostic that doesn't mean that every idea has to fit across all platforms that's almost that's almost too limiting for mm. us um, it does mean that we can look at an idea and go do you know what that would make a much better comic book than it would a video game or maybe we should start out in one medium and then go to another. So we, we have that there, but it doesn't mean that every single idea that we do, you know, we, we did, um, we're doing a documentary about the band Runrig. We're not gonna make a video game about Runrig. We just really love the story that there was to tell about their journey over the last 45 years. Um, so we, we do have that, but the still this idea of, of platform agnostic is very much there as a, as a foundation, but then, Really, we love this idea of genre with hearts. And that comes from this idea that genre film or, or genre video games, if you want to call it that, um, they have an accessibility. They can reach a very wide audience. Yeah. But by telling stories that have heart, that can connect with people, that have hope in them, um, that are maybe saying something a little bit deeper, uh, you can just... you can transmit these ideas to a really wide audience. And so we're, we're unashamedly commercial. For sure, uh, we like to think another a sort of third criteria is commercial with a twist. We don't want to do exactly the same as everyone else, but we know in order to get financing, in order to get an audience or players to play your game, you've got to be able to sell something that is somewhat familiar. But then you want to you want to do something a little bit different as well. When you've got them in the cinema or you've got them to download your game, then you go. But actually bit of a bait and switch we're going to do something a little bit different as well mm. um so we don't always <laughs> we're not always successful in all of that but we um it's certainly the kind of three areas where we we will, that's kind of what we measure ourselves against when we're trying to figure out what mm. we want to do and such 
like really different business models for film and games is that how do you or or, or is, is it i mean maybe it'd be helpful to describe yeah describe the, the difference so well there are so many different business models within each industry as well yeah. so actually you'll find that there are similar business models in film and games in certain areas okay so you can have the indie film model European model, which is a lot of soft money from um, cultural funds, uh, which is phenomenal, trying to piece it together with some pre-sales and some debt and all of that, and you mm -hmm. get to retain most of the IP. <clears throat> um, you probably need a rich person to put in a little bit of money as well, um, and and then you go and make your film. Mm -hmm. You also get the studio model, where they come in and they take all the IP, but they pay you a bunch of money to go and make it um, and you may retain some rights and there's a you will get you may get control over some parts of the IP but ultimately they're going to get the lion's share of it and then of course now you get the streaming model where actually it's completely different depending on which streamer you go to so there's just there's just not one uh, one version of it but what is true is mm. you're creating and you can think of it like a prototype in terms of a script or at least a package, sometimes it's just a pitch, mm. um, and you're going out and you're trying to get your pro you're trying to get someone to fund your prototype. And actually, it's not that different from games. Mm. Some games companies will self-fund, and that's that's is common at a certain stage. But a lot of games companies will develop these prototypes, and in our case, it's got to be a playable prototype. It's got to be something that you can sort of play around with, and it, you've got the core um, game loop in there. You're getting to show an idea of what the visuals will look like, and you're selling what this, the vision of what the game will be. Mm. But that's kind of like your script with your director and your actors, and you're saying, hey, here's my mood book. Okay. We're making that yeah. in a game engine, and then we're going to publishers, which is an analog for a distributor or pre-sales, and we're saying, hey, give us some money. We're going to make this game uh, for you. There are so many other models in there now as well because there's first-party um, funding, and we were really fortunate to work with Apple on our current game, Murder Mystery Machine. Um, last episode, uh, the third episode was just released on Friday on Apple Arcade. Um, just a wee plug there, uh, and um, we that that model has has shifted things again, and it's it's just constantly changing. But mm. the core idea of you creating something that is the 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 the, the kernel of an idea that looks that you can convince someone that you can make someone trust that you can build that into something brilliant, mm. it applies across the board. Mm. Is there a uh, we had a quick chat about this before, but the using game engines to prototype games, people are using game engines to prototype films now as well. Yep. Are, you, are you, is that a space you're, you're, you're interested in or you're looking to do more of? So we did that in 2014, maybe, I think. We, we in Unity, the game engine, and using mocap, motion capture, mm. we um, prevised an entire film script that we were developing just to see if it was a useful tool for development. Um, it turned out it was, but it took so long and we needed to be so iterative with the script. We actually were too early to do it, I think. Um, but it was, it could be a really useful tool. Mm. I think we didn't go about it quite the right way. People weren't really doing it back then, certainly not people of our scale. So I think we made a lot of mistakes and knowing what we do now, and we literally have a in a game engine, we've got a two-hour film sitting, having been made in a very rough and ready way. Yeah. Um, that ultimately we could have we could have done in a, in probably later stages of what we were of, of film 
of the script development. Um, but I think it's an incredible tool. We certainly see it on some of the shows that we do post-production on, particularly that are VFX heavy as a mm. planning tool is really great. I think it's got a huge strength for script development. The number of huge films that you see that you're like, someone just put $100 million or $200 million into this film. Did they not mm. understand how the script was going to translate onto screen? And there are always things go wrong in production. You always have to be on your feet. Mm. Everyone here who works in production will know what it's like. Things don't always go to plan. But I think it can be if you've got the time and resource to, to um, commit your script to film through previs yeah. early on. It can yeah. be a huge, yeah. important tool. It makes sense, doesn't it? You can plan your shots and you know, do, do, do the edit before you even start shooting. So it's kind of... We, we actually, we mostly used it in the end to plan our set builds. Yes. Even though we didn't yes. end up building those sets, but we were like, we'd sort of heard horror stories about building these really big expensive sets and then only using one side of it. And we were like, well, if we can just do that with our in-house team yeah. and plan it beforehand, we can half our set yeah. build costs. Where's the camera going to be? And <laughs> yeah. then, it's not well, as simple as that, as yeah. it turns out, but it's that idea. That's uh, yeah. Well, that's, that's definitely. I think the the virtual product. That process, otherwise known as virtual production, is 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 a really growth area, yeah. um, and and very interesting. So so um, yeah. Coming back to your creative process, maybe maybe it's a good idea to to talk about a, a project um, as an example of how how that works. So Anna and the, the Apocalypse, uh, <laughs> yes. that wonderful. Zombie musical yeah. comedy. Yeah, uh, you you went for musical. I mean, that's a, that's a tough <laughs> that's a tough thing to, uh, to to crack, isn't it? But you, yeah, you you went went for it all with 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 effects and everything. How did that how did that come across your your desk? And then why why did that fit the Blazing Griffin model? So <laughs> I will talk about this, very happy to. Um, big caveat at the start is that this did not follow any model. Okay. <laughs> um, and it sort of fit into what we were doing, and I think that's the reason why it happened. But the reason why Anna and the Apocalypse began is just is, is, is because of life, not because of business. Um, that what we then ended up wanting to do with it, and we can sort of show you, was was to try and make something of that property, but it's um, it's as much personal as it is um, professional, I think, with, with this project. Um, so it started life um, as a short film called Zombie Musical <clears throat> that we shot in 2010, and it was uh, written and directed by my friend Ryan McHenry. We both grew up in Dumfries, and we used to make short films together, um, really weird ones not that much weirder than Zombie Musical, around about that same level of weirdness. There's a whole load of us who um, made short films together. Uh, and um, it was, most of us had just, either just graduated, some of us were still students, and we, um, we thought it sounded like a great idea to try and raise some money from local businesses and friends and family. And it was our first time getting grant funding from a local film agency. And so there's a lot of like things where we were figuring out how to, had to work in the not quite professional industry at that time. And um, we went and we shot a zombie musical in, I think, three and a half days on I think, around about £4,000 budget, I think, in the end, which was a massive amount of money for us then. Um, we, uh, 
it got shown at the dumb. Well, actually, we hadn't even cut the movie, and we showed a shot. There's a, there's a a sequence where the main character is um, going down the street, and she's singing a song, and there's kind of the apocalypse is happening in the background, mm, and it's actually. Yeah. It's a it's a scene that we replicate in the in the movie, but a lot bigger and a lot more intricate. Uh, and um, we just showed that that shot uh, at this film festival in Dumfries, and um, there was a producer there who there was two producers there, in fact, who looked at it, and they came up afterwards and they were like, "Can we talk to you about making a feature version of this film?" And I was like, "Holy crap! <laughs> I am going to Hollywood! <laughs> Great!" Um, I thought that I had made it, um, and I've thought that many times in my career, and it's not actually happened. Um, but the uh, it started many of us off in our professional uh, um, careers in the film and TV industries, and um, we started developing that as a feature film, and that all just happened. So it was at this point, it was just kind of a snowball, and we were just reacting. And mm. um, I got a job with that company, and we just kind of went for it. And um, we were gearing up to shoot the film in 2013 when uh, Ryan, my friend, he was diagnosed with cancer and osteosarcoma, which is a fairly rare form of bone cancer. And uh, we obviously put a pause on everything. And then there was a two years while he was undergoing treatment. And unfortunately, he passed away in 2015. So we spent, spent a lot of time while he was undergoing treatment talking about what we wanted to do when he was better and very, very small amount talking about what we do if he didn't get better because that's not the kind of thing that you want to talk about when that's going on. Um, but we we decided that um, not that long before he passed away that it was something that we really wanted to do um, and that he wanted us to do as well. Mm. So it's not your normal film story, mm. <laughs> I guess. As all of this was happening, I was also starting Blazing Griffin and we were doing, moving into getting video games and post going and all of that. And that journey started in 2013 as well. Um, and then we were founded properly in 2014. So that, this was all happening around the same time. But fast forward 2016, um, we found we searched for a director for a long time because it's a really hard thing to ask someone to do and it's a really hard thing for us to figure out this was you know ryan's vision how do you ask someone to step into that and how do you judge them fairly when you've got this fixed idea in your head and you've had that for years about what this movie's going to be yeah. and uh we um but we found john mcphail um pretty much on our doorstep who's <laughs> basically like our neighbor and this is after a worldwide search we talked to australians and americans and english people and all over the place um and john mcphail ended up being the right guy and um uh, i'm so pleased because what he did for uh, apocalypse is just incredible he made it his own whilst also he managed to make it entirely his own film while also being totally true to ryan's original vision which is a really hard thing to do especially since they'd never met um he was so respectful of what Ryan had done as well uh, and what Ryan had created. So that, um, whilst that was going, we were also figuring ourselves out commercially. So it is this kind of dual process. Mm. So part of what we were trying to do with Anne in the Apocalypse, aside from kind of fulfill this personal mission, was also prove what we could do commercially. And we actually thought that a zombie musical was exactly the right thing. We were like, if we can prove that we can pull this off for very little money 
it's a high risk stretch. <laughs> We've never been afraid of risk. Um, then we, we, we were like, we can prove we can do mm. anything. Mm. Um, and we also thought for a, a zombie musical is also something that lends itself to exactly all the stuff that we've been talking about for these first few years of Blazing Griffin, which is, is this creating story worlds? Is there a video game of this? Is there other expressions of this um, world that, because we love it, we love the idea of music and zombies, so we don't mind staying with it for a bit longer, um, what, what else can we do? Mm. So, um, and the, the, the next part of that was also going, proving this vertical integration, that actually having post-production and production together could really create something really special. So we didn't have a lot of money for, for Anne and the Apocalypse. It's a lot of money for some people, and it was a lot of money for us, but it's not necessarily a lot of money in the, in the, in the um, usual filmmaking, particularly for a zombie musical. Well, we, what was the budget? It was 1.6 million pounds. Okay. Um, so we figured <clears throat> post-production, I was an editor briefly, and I kind of knew the value of what, it, um, uh, what post-production could bring to make something look bigger than it was. So we thought that was going to be a huge boost to integrate that right from the start. So we were really focused on our VFX strategy, on a workflow where we could essentially bring VFX in-house mm. and distribute it across the world kind of in the way the big guys do it, but doing it on a really small scale. Um, and uh, of course with post-production, it meant that if we overran, um, we would be able to um, we'd be able to come back in as long as we weren't messing around our clients. Uh, and we ended up grading the film twice, which most people don't have the luxury of, um, but it ended up being, it was a very stressful time in the run-up to Fantastic Fest, which was our world premiere. We were still grading the film the week before, so that was fun. Um, Regrading the film the week before, which was the right thing to do. Um, at the same time, we can't take our post-production business for a ride, and we can't also, like, if, if we end up being... Um, if we end up taking the mickey out of post-production mm. and also... Um, offering ourselves a preferential rate when our clients are getting another rate, mm. it, we start to distort the market. So we're always really conscious that we were never going to give ourselves a better deal that we might give any other indie. So we paid money. We always we made sure that the, the film was paying its way and the post-production was making its way commercially. So we're it's a constant balance. It was never easy. There's tensions to figure out along the way. Um, but it was an important part of how to make that 1.6 million pounds really look bigger. We were also building post-production at the time, so we started editing and in the apocalypse as construction of the facility was happening around us. This was in uh, January 2017. So we were, there were two functioning suites on this whole floor that was literally being constructed around us. And at night we'd have to open up the computers and then hoover out the dust from construction that had entered it during the day because we had a couple of times that they crashed. <laughs> uh, that was not a good thing. Um, so, but, so we were an untested facility and we, it was amazing being able to say, but we're going to bring our own project. We can take a risk on our own facility and prove what we can do on that side too. So there were benefits to, mm -hmm. to both sides. So this was the important one. So this okay, in, in, can you describe this for the for the listeners? Yes. Okay. So this is a slide that I presented to our our board of directors in 2016, um, with this idea of um, of what we could do with Anne in the Apocalypse. So um, it's a sort of I don't know flowchart kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, starts off in 2009, film school project. 2009 is when the script was written. 2010 is when we filmed it. Becomes this short zombie musical. 
Um, we win a new talent BAFTA, uh, which is always nice. <laughs> um, then we move on to creating Anne and the Apocalypse. And along with that, we have post-production. And then here we have this thing that never happened, which is a mobile game. So we were like, this will be the first time when we can show Anne and the Apocalypse works with vertical integration and horizontal mm. with, with the mobile game. Mm. The game didn't happen. There's some really good reasons why that didn't happen. We'll talk about it. Um, but then what we have then is this is a series of arrows moving into what we figured could become of Anime Apocalypse, which is its music, a TV series, consumer products, uh, live entertainment, which is like stage, and publishing slash graphic novels. Mm. So <laughs> this is a really hard thing to talk about because actually this is all in progress. Um, so I'll talk circumspectly okay. about it. Um, we... Because of the movement that we had on a couple of these things, and I can't say specifically about it, we ended up pausing development on a game. We actually did create a prototype for a video game. We were figuring out our prototyping process during that time, so it was a very slow process. And this is kind of the benefit of testing this out on your own projects. We were like, how, how best to creatively integrate these two divisions? And we didn't do it that well, honestly, to begin with. We've, we're much better at it now. Um, but we did develop the prototype and then went pause because there's a couple of other things happening on this far right hand side um, that I won't be specific about, but it has to do with music, TV, consumer products, stage and graphic novels. A couple of things within there that then are, are happening right. and will be and, talked and about is soon. It, and is that working with, like you mentioned before, other partners? Yeah, exactly. So part, taking your IP and then partnering with media other media company or brands and yeah, leveraging yeah, exactly. it that way. Yeah. So we went, you know, when these things we're not experts and we're not really experts in anything, we're, we're trying to figure it all out. Um, and, uh, but there are people out there who are, or at least think they are. And, uh, and who definitely know much more, yeah. much better about these um, industries than we do. So let's work with them. And, and it's going really well. We're really happy with so that. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's obviously it, it will, Maybe by the time this podcast goes yes. goes out, we can <laughs> we can reveal um, some of those partnerships. Uh, yeah, I really, yeah, we we should be able to. Yeah, yeah, okay. uh, yeah it's the next few days, so yeah, okay. it should be all good. Um, but but the, so that's that's, that's so you wouldn't that wouldn't have happened without the the, the feature film. You, you, yeah, you couldn't really do it the other way around. No. Yeah. And I, I guess this is to illustrate that whilst this was obviously a very personal project. And we had really good reasons for wanting to make this film a kind of legacy for Ryan. Uh, we also went into it going, this can, this is something, you know, in 2016, we said, yeah. this is what we want to do with this, with this property. And that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah. And that has been an interesting journey. For it's, all it, sounds, that. it sounds formative. Sounds formative. <laughs> Very but, formative. Coming of age. Because <laughs> you were literally testing. You were like, let's let's run this through our our company, and then and then try and yeah figure it out as we as we as we go along. And and so the, the the short of it is, we haven't heard seen the last of no, Anna, yeah, not Anna yet. Yeah, there's some fun things to come. What is the future of film? Discover the trends, strategies, and technologies that are shaping film's future in the Future of Film 2020 report. Download your copy now for free at futureoffilm.live. That's the Future of Film 2020 report, available now 
at futureoffilm.live. You're listening to Film Disruptors, and I'm in conversation with Blazing Griffin's Nason Alai Karu. If you are enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And I start this section by asking Nason about audiences and the difference between consumers for film and games. When someone says, oh, I'm a gamer, I know what they mean. So there is obviously still something that an identity that's formed around this idea of a gamer. Is that like saying, is that, sorry, is that like saying I'm a film buff being a gamer? Because it's kind of like, yeah, it's not like I play games casually. Like if someone was playing uh, Candy Crush, they wouldn't call themselves a gamer necessarily. But they are, they? yeah. But yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. As it, but that's, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. So a film buff, yeah, of course they watch more films than the average person, but almost everyone watches film or TV. Yeah. That is just something that we do. And I think yeah. games recently, in the last decade probably, has become almost that as well. It's not quite the same thing. Um, and it does present challenges that it's not quite the same thing. Because even though games are are a much bigger industry, it is a, for certain types of games, it's still a smaller audience. And so this is one of the challenges that you come across with trying to for, go from games to film or to TV, mm. that you are essentially up, up converting. So normally when we talk about conversion, you're like, we've got all these people who've seen my ad when they've Google searched for something, and then a, hand, a few percentage of that are going to click on the ad, and a few percentage of that are then going to click through to actually to the funnel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You've got this, you've got this, um, um, this funnel. Yeah. For games to convert to a film audience, you have to up-convert, because even though you're making more money with a game, the ticket price is much higher, so your unit sales are much lower. Sorry, it's a little bit like it's a little bit boring this, but it's actually really no, no, this is, this is fascinating. <laughs> but let me say that again. That's my so I'm still catching up from my my long train journey. <laughs> Sorry, I'm jet lagged, so I've got no idea if I'm you're making jet, any sense. You're jet lagged, <laughs> and I'm I'm train train lagged, bus you know bus yeah. rail replacement lag. Um, yeah, so 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 say that again. <laughs> whilst games make more money, they have fewer unit sales. Yes. So. Uh, a film, yeah, you've got to pay 15 quid to go, or you know, hopefully a little less, to go to the cinema. And a lot of people will go to the cinema. And then a lot of people will watch it on a plane, they'll watch it on TV, they'll get the mm. DVD, well, they won't buy the DVD anymore, but they'll watch yeah. it on iTunes yeah. or, or whatever. Yeah. There's, you get to a lot of people and the ticket price is much lower. It ends up making no money, but millions of people have seen what yeah, you've made. touched it, yeah. With yeah. a game, you've... You, you know, you can charge anything from, sure, something on your phone could be three quid, but the kind of more premium games are anything from 20 to 60 pounds. Mm. And you're getting 200,000, maybe a million, maybe two million people over its lifetime who will see it and play it. But there's no free version of that, at least until recently, with or at least subscription model coming in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but you're, the number of eyeballs who ultimately see your game, you make millions in the process, yeah. maybe. Games is still a hard industry and not everyone makes money. But you, the, the individual product makes a lot of money and far fewer people have seen it. So then to translate that into a f- TV show or film, it's like, well, mm. you've got 200,000 people, you made tons of money, but to, you're going to get like maybe 20% of those are then going to go watch your film. Mm. And that means 50,000, or no, that's not good math, 40,000 people mm. are going to go watch your film. That's not a business model. Mm. So it's a hard, there's a reason why that 
hasn't yet worked. There's also a creative reason because many video game adaptations have really sucked, mm. although that's starting to change. Um, Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the biggest one yet. But... You can't even, that's not even a video game adaptation, really. It's mm. an IP. Mm. And I think that's where you're starting to see more interesting things. It's like The Witcher was not a video game, ad video game adaptation. It is based on an underlying IP, and Sonic... It's like it's got a world of IP, and that's one expression of it. And I think that's when you start to see more successful adaptations is when you've gone, we're not beholden to this original audience. We've made something which has actually become a part of pop culture, and then we're making an expression, a product expression inside that creation, rather than a straightforward ad adaptation. I still think adaptations are possible, but it's a hard thing. Mm. Uh, so, so well, I don't even remember what your question was. Well, well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was to do with audiences. Oh, yeah. Doubt it. So, so you're so you up-converting from, from, from games. So, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah. That's, that's fascinating. I never realised that before. The, the, the number, despite the, the, the dollar size, dollar's bigger, but the numbers audience are smaller. But, so having said that, mm. back to your question about, <laughs> I forgot about audience. Um, I, th I think... Now, like everyone watches films, almost everyone plays games. It's maybe not quite the same thing. They're just a different type of game. They're, they're um, free-to-play games, so you, you obviously, uh, only a small percentage of those people will ever pay money in those games, but it mm. does mean that they're accessible to a wide range of people, um, which is, is both brilliant in that it means you get, means everyone can, everyone can be a gamer no matter your income, which is brilliant as long as you can afford a device. Mm. Um, and but it also leads to certain business practices which people might think are a little bit sneaky but have they have pros and cons for sure um i think what we have now is exactly the same with film that we've got a problem of discoverability so there is an audience out there for your game or for your film or for your show but there is so much content and pe the, the the companies in between are not necessarily incentivized to prioritize your particular piece of content to your specific audience over anyone else. So why, why do it? Yeah. They just need volume. They take a 30% out of everyone's game. So your, your game or your film or your TV show is essentially fungible. It's a commodity to that platform, unless they own a piece of your, your content. So it's discoverability across content. Everyone's been talking about it for years. It is an issue. I think we have to talk about developing audiences as well. So not just not just kind of falling into that trap of going, well, that is the way it is, and we're just gonna try and spend marketing money to shout louder, but it's actually going, well, what is our audience now? Um, how do we how do we do some innovative things to target those audiences and actually be able to to show them? It's not it's not to do anything manipulative, but it's actually just be able to sit your product in front of the right people who almost certainly will like your film or, film or game and, and go, hey, we've got something for you. There are companies out there, one particular one that we're going to be working with on a film soon, I can't yet talk about, that are doing some really interesting things in that space. And I think you'll see more people move into that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think Apple has done some really interesting things where, again, they've not just... Um, They've not just followed the leader. They've gone, we want to create premium experiences. We want to curate a premium quality game. And we're going to do that through a subscription service. So with Murder Mystery Machine, we were, we were part of Apple Arcade. And that's brilliant because you can create a game that people will not, will rarely these days want to pay for um, upfront. 
because there's free-to-play games being out-competed. And so just following that market, you would just create free-to-play games. What Apple has done is saying, actually, no, we want to focus on premium content. Mm -hmm. There's a market out there. People do want this, but we've got to change the model in order to be able to show to get that content to people. So they've gone subscription service um, and, uh, and they've curated the games to ensure that they've got a certain quality and um, and and it's working. It certainly seems to be. Um, so I think you're going to start to see more of that as people go. How do we um, how do we approach our audience differently, yeah. and how do we answer discoverability? Yeah, curation, for sure. Uh, and discover. Uh, we're in a we're in a film festival, and so obviously that's a good place to discover discover films. Uh, and so is is. There, there's not really a similar, uh, uh, you know, a, a game's equivalent of, of that, is there? Uh, no, there is. Okay. There's the packs. Actually, there are game festivals. Okay. So, um, right. I'm ignorant on that. No, no, no like the the yeah. um, uh, the packs conventions that happen mm. all around the place are consumer focused games um, games events where you get to show off your indie game and you get to you you mm. stand there at their booth and you go, hey, come and play my game, mm. and there are con- there are tons of industry focused ones where you get to do exactly the same thing but it's um, b2b uh, rather than um, b2c mm. so uh, it is it is a similar sort of thing where you're hoping there are competitions and you're trying to you're trying to create a product which at these big events just pops and and um you're hoping word of mouth which is still so powerful will yeah. um, transcend the noise and get your get your product sold what about uh, what about Steam getting into sort of the <laughs> indie gaming? Is that is, is is that's that was an indie gaming platform, right? And did that sort of change the way games were perceived? Uh, I'm I'm afraid I'm not <laughs> too too well informed about all of this, but uh, I, I guess I, what I, I'm sort of trying to lead to. Well, if if it did help people discover indie games, is there could it be a film kind of equivalent? Cool. <laughs> interesting <laughs> question. Um, Steam. It's an interesting case study because it didn't start off as an indie game platform, but it okay. became one a few years after right. it was created, and it led to an explosion in the in the industry. It was it yeah. was the golden era for indie games. It, but that that's what it became. Okay. It then okay. ceased to be that because of this issue of discoverability because there's so much content on there right. that it could no longer... Right. It was it's so, such a neutral platform, which is not necessarily the wrong thing at all, but the downside of that is that how do you, how do you get seen? Yeah. Um, so I, I do wonder if learning from that experience and seeing the kind of how, how the pattern of that has mm. progressed, whether or not something like that for mm. indie film would necessarily work. So yeah, maybe maybe thinking curation first, and I I as think opposed to open an open platform. Yeah, I mean YouTube yeah. is is that right? Yeah, and, and yeah. that that works for certain things, and it's got a it's got a model which works really well. Um, I it's obviously not necessarily the same for indie film, um, but I think that's likely to be the type of content that works for that model, where it's an open platform that anyone can can mm. post to. Mm. Um, I think there are probably there are. It is a hard question to answer about mm. how indie film will work from here on out. Mm. And I think there's a, so many structural questions that need to be answered, particularly in the UK. And that is from everything from cinema chains to behaviours inside distribution to the role that the likes of the BFI and all of that have to play mm-hmm. as much as there is for the commercial side, the, the kind of like nuts and bolts of the industry. Mm-hmm. 
I feel like we need a few hours to go <laughs> into that. How long we got? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I definitely don't have the answer. I can struggle with it. Uh, what's uh, is? I mean, in terms of distribution, have you um, ha- have you thought about doing that yourself, taking control of of that more, or, or is it all about partnering and? We've we've thought about it and mm. we've we've self published and we've dab- certainly dabbled in distribution ourselves. Mm. We're just not set up for it. We're mm. not an expert and we can't be in everything. Mm. And whilst there might be that conversation in a few years' time, I think right now, for certain, we want to work with people who know how to do it well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think the the key the key for that that we've discovered is that the companies that you're working for have to be as bought in for your film or game. As you are, yeah, and that really means they've got to be financially invested. There's nothing really that works other than they've got to have a financial stake in what you're doing. It's got to be meaningful indeed. Hi, it's Alex here. I'm convinced that there are now incredible opportunities for producers looking to bring stories to screen. There are now more formats, platforms, distribution, and financing strategies than ever before. That's why I am launching. The Future of Film Entrepreneurial Storyteller Program. It's a 12-month virtual program designed for producers looking to build future-proofed businesses and careers. Discover how the Future of Film Entrepreneurial Storyteller Program can take your projects and career to the next level and register your interest today at futureoffilm.live slash ESP. That's futureoffilm.live slash ESP. You're listening to Film Disruptors and I'm in conversation with storyteller and entrepreneur Nathan Alai Karu. To receive new episodes of the show straight to your inbox, sign up for updates at the home of Film Disruptors, which is futureoffilm.live. And I start this section by asking Nathan what his key lessons or takeaways are from his business and career journey to date. The first is it really comes back to what we were just talking about is partnerships. So developing a community of people and companies that you trust and can work with well right away early on is just so important proving yourself in that field it takes time it's not complicated so i'm not sure if it's something i could change because you have to kind of go through it to prove yourself to the wider industry that you have trusted there's certainly things we could have sped up i think if we were really focused on it um i'm we're in a place now where i'm really happy with that community of of, of people and, and and companies but mm. uh, i think if i'd gone in with that as a goal it all would have happened a lot faster. Um, I also think speed. (laughs) And this is something I'm learning from the States. They just react and act so quickly uh, to everything. And we are, you know, there there are definitely good things about taking your time and we tend to take our time in the UK, but there's something we get left behind as well. And just being able to react and act fast and that 
that isn't necessarily compatible with uh, what some people might consider a kind of authentic creative process. Mm. Where you're getting to go and you're getting to create something wonderful that you love um, and that you think is precious and then can send out to the world. And that is a valid way of doing things. Mm. It's not necessarily commercially viable. And so if you've got, it could be, but it's a very high risk strategy. Mm. Um, mm. But to be, I think, to get to a place that is more likely to be commercially viable, at least quicker, learning some of that responsiveness um, and and being able to, it's like learning from manufacturing, it's like rapid prototyping. Yeah. How do you get to a minimum viable product in the quickest amount of time? And it's horrible to try and reduce something that's so inherently creative to these quite mechanical ideas. But I think it's really useful to look at our industry sometimes take a step back and go, we're manufacturing. That's what we're doing. We're creating a product as much as it is this labor of love. And it has to be because it's a bloody hard industry to work in. All of them, all the creative industries are. But what we're doing is creating minimum viable products mm -hmm. through a prototyping process that we need to take to market and sell. Like that is what we're doing. Yeah. And when you reduce it like that, you can think about ways to go, okay, well, where, where do we duck and dive? Where's our critical path? to speeding up this process. And I, I just think if, if we kind of looked at how do we do this more rapidly at the start, yep. we'd be further along. So brilliant, I love that. So um, I was talking about this with uh, on a podcast last week with with some tech entrepreneurs and talking about this this idea of the MVP and <laughs> lean startup. Yep. Can you get how, and, and so how do you, because the idea of the MVP is classically like an app or something and you, you get it out there and you, it, it does its job and you can quickly see where there's uptake and stuff. What's the equivalent for, for, for film? What would, that, what would that look like? Are you testing it with the market or, or audiences? Or? Yeah, it's your package. Yeah. It's your script or yeah, your pitch. Yeah. Uh, it's your director and it's your cast. Yeah. Um, and it's your producers as well. And it's going, okay, if I'm not the biggest producer, what producer can I get on board who's going to do this? If, um, if we, don't, we can't get access to the biggest cast, what's the, net, what's the level of cast I can get to who can then give me access to larger cast? Mm. Um, the same with the director. Okay, I can't get the biggest film director, but actually this amazing TV director has been looking for their break into film for a long time. Is that a way of accessing and still showing, still proving that they're going to be able to do the job on a feature film, but they're not yet out of my reach? Mm -hmm. And then it is going and beating the streets. It's meeting everyone, and it's just honestly it, yeah. part of the trick is just being around for a long enough time that people get to know you <laughs> and they start to trust you. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the only thing, Sticking but it's, it's definitely a part of it. Yeah. Um, and it's going and it's just making friends and making trusted yeah. relationships with people out there. That's mm. such an inherent part of the process, mm. going to all of the festivals, going to all the markets. And that's a tough thing to say because it's not accessible to everyone. And I know that. And that's a crap part of our industry. Um, because there, there's just such an inequality to it still. Um, on the other hand, you can make short films and there's such a viable way of proving yourself. Mm. And, and I, I think, you know, we, I'm repped at CAA and they scour film festivals, short film festivals, looking for the ne next hot young director, writer, producer. Like they're out there watching those films so you put your heart and soul into a short film and get it as f across the world in mm. film festivals. Yeah, that's a that's a great minimum viable product. You, as long as you can sell yourself and you can sell that yeah. into something bigger. Yeah. So people are always looking for more. 
as much as discoverability is a problem, people also are needing content. They're eating it up. There are so many new platforms out there. There are so many companies who've got deals with these platforms that they have to fulfill a certain number of pitches per year. They're looking for it and they're not finding them. And there are so many opportunities with streamers now. They're looking for international content that they're not necessarily that many companies that can fulfill all of those slots. Like there's, there is opportunity out there if you focus on MVPs and you focus on, on, on arbitrage, really. Great. Uh, you, you mentioned um, you had three, <laughs> maybe three. <laughs> Sorry, oh, God. I, I, what was I, my third? Oh, it was the third thing I'd change is the, um, it's that, actually the thing we really learned from Anna uh, making it something bigger than just a film is bringing that core creative in earlier to look at other products. Okay. So we kind of, we added on at the end rather than think after we'd already made the film and it would have been better to have experts in, for example, our video right. game division along that process yeah. to really have bought into the creative vision of the film to be able to take that into the video game yeah. world. Cool. Uh, what's your advice for emerging an emerging storyteller, someone who, a filmmaker who wants to create, uh, and it may not be a filmmaker, someone, you know, but someone who wants to tell stories, um, what would you say it, to that person? It's very specific to me and my journey, but the only reason that I made anything of a career is because of all the people who I worked with along the way and it's finding that group of people. Um, I, I think that is more important than anything else because you will, to create something creatively brilliant, uh, like you, a film is not around one person's idea, it's about so many people and you just, you wanna, especially when you're you're starting out, you've got to develop that vision. I, I feel like I had to, I, don't, I couldn't have done it on my own. Maybe there are people out there who could, mm -hmm. but having that group of trusted people and trusted creatives around you that go up with you, mm -hmm. I think that's the key. They have to be your peer group, they have to be at your level that you are building your career with. I think that, that was for me the answer to everything. So that was my conversation with storyteller and entrepreneur Blazing Griffins, Nason Alai Karu. If you want to find out more about Nason or any of the other guests on the show, you can listen to all of the other episodes and get in touch. You can do all of this at futureoffilm.live. So that's it for this episode. I'd just like to say thank you again for listening and look forward to seeing you again soon. Hi, it's Alex here. I'm convinced that there are now incredible opportunities for producers looking to bring stories to screen. There are now more formats, platforms, distribution, and financing strategies than ever before. That's why I am launching the Future of Film Entrepreneurial Storyteller Program. It's a 12-month virtual program designed for producers looking to build future-proofed businesses and careers. Discover how the Future of Film Entrepreneurial Storyteller Program can take your projects and career to the next level and register your interest today at futureoffilm.live slash ESP. That's futureoffilm.live slash ESP.